Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for joining us today. The Doctor's Lounge is broadcast on America's Web Radio every Thursday at 8 a.m. and is available for podcast the following Monday, that same show. We are delighted to have you with us. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. For this week, as you know, we alternate weeks uh, with Dr. Hal Schertz, and Hal will be back uh, next week with a special guest uh, from the uh, Heritage Foundation, uh, Bob Moffat. And they will be discussing uh, a similar topic to what we're discussing today, which is worthy of two shows in a row. It's actually worthy of about four or five shows in a row. And we've got a lot to cover today. This is a very important show. We are going to be discussing um, the response to MACRA. What is MACRA? MACRA is called the Medicare Access and Chips Reauthorization Act of 2015. Uh, it is the largest body of legislation that applies to the practice of medicine since Obamacare was passed six years ago. And as we sit here in May and June of 2016, we are in what's called the public comment period regarding this law. Uh, we have 60 days, which started at the beginning of May, obviously ends at the end of June, to respond to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services regarding the law. And the deadline for comments to be formally submitted is June 27th. And so it is fitting uh, as we reach roughly the midpoint of this commentary period um, that we actually come up with comments of our own and comments of my own uh, regarding uh, this very important uh, piece of legislation. And it turns out that timing-wise, it's even more important than that because, um, you know, as such a large piece of legislation, uh, this is occurring in an election year. Um, it is also occurring as the doctor's movement, as we have discussed here, uh, and the Doctor Patient Care Foundation spearheads this movement but shares that leadership role with some other groups. Uh, but uh, the, the doctors are becoming politically savvy. They're becoming policy-informed. Uh, we are finding our voice. Uh, we are no longer just pleasers, uh, which is to the benefit of our patients because we are learning um, that patient advocacy – um, the Hippocratic Oath to take care of patients extends beyond the exam room, extends beyond the operating room in the clinic, and that we can't fully do our job to take the best care of patients that we can unless we carry their cause, that we champion their cause to Capitol Hill, to state legislators, uh, to the bureaucrats and administrators that, uh, that exist inside the Beltway and have such a profound impact on our lives and our patients' lives and our ability to take care of patients. One other uh, issue that makes this such an important point in history is that this body of legislation and, and, and the regulations that go with it, this thing called MACRA uh, and MIPS, the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, uh, represents a consolidation and then subsequent expansion, but primarily a consolidation of a variety of federal programs that all have sort of lived, lived sort of semi-obscured in little corners here and there. There was PQRS, uh, quality, uh, quality reporting system. There was HIPAA. There was meaningful use uh, for electronic medical records. And these were all sort of contemplated one at a time. Uh, this law gathers all of those into one giant piece of legislation and allows one to con 
to contemplate uh, the entirety of this, uh, the hugeness of this, the uh, the, the, the massive, top-heavy uh, nature of these regulations all in one uh, body of work. Uh, and that certainly brings um, the true nature of the heavy hand of all of these regulations uh, into very sharp focus. And lastly, related to that, is that it brings a lot of concepts that are frequently debated um, and were frequently debated when Obamacare was being litigated and bring those back into sharp focus. The concepts of cost and access versus the concepts of quality and value. And so it brings a lot of these ethereal sort of debates um, back to the surface. And so because this is such an important um, point in history and, and, and what we say and do at this point is, uh, is so uh, important, it's also important to emphasize the need um, to my fellow physicians and colleagues in this regard um, to, to have a very, very sophisticated response, to have a very measured response. Uh, these regulations and the, and the spirit of heavy-handed government that they represent uh, quite appropriately evokes a lot of emotion, as it should, and it evokes those same emotions in me as well. The problem is uh, that if we go to the Beltway with uh, you know torches and pitchforks, uh, we're not going to get very far because that that approach is simply not effective. Uh, and so, what we need is something more sophisticated. We need something that resonates with our patients, something that resonates with the public, uh, that allows us to drive our point of view home. Uh, and allows us to make progress with the same level of skill um, as the folks on the other side have had for much longer than we have. So you just can't look at this and, and react from uh, from your gut. Uh, you have to understand the context. Uh, you have to understand the environment in which these rules are written. You know, it is very easy uh, and wrong, but very easy to assume that this was just a group of legislators that got together, or not a group of legislators, but a group of, of regulators, of, of bureaucrats who got together in Washington and said, let's think up the most sophisticated way we can to make doctors' lives miserable and start with a clean sheet of paper, actually 962 clean sheets of paper, uh, and write this 962-page body of regulations, starting with a clean sheet of paper, but that's not how how it works. Although we're in the comment period for the macro regulations, the macro legislation, which is different than the regulations we're reviewing today, is already passed. It's already a done deal. So if you think that you're going to uh, mount this huge response in an effort to extinguish macro, uh, that's just not going to happen because CMS is required by the macro legislation to write a body of macro regulations that comply with the legislation. So the legislation imposes a floor on what macro has to say and the, and the fact that macro has to exist in the first place. Now that's not to say that we can't work on legislative changes to support changes in the regulation that have to happen, but you have to understand this this milieu, and you have to understand that even living behind the regulation and behind the legislation that's behind the regulation is this movement that has been going on for years and years uh, regarding value and quality and pay for performance, uh, and all of these things have sort of um, sort of live by their own labeling hypothesis. They live by their own sort of propaganda-based momentum. And you're not going to snuff those fires out in a two-month commentary period. It's not going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that we all just roll over and play dead and let this happen. Far from it. 
And that's why I've prepared for, for this show for probably eight or ten hours to do my best effort uh, in one of the most important shows I think I've ever had the privilege of doing. And I chose to do by myself because there's so much to cover. Uh, but, uh, but we have to be smart about this, folks. We have to be strategic. And we have to understand that just getting angry just isn't going to cut it. And saying that we simply need to make macro disappear, much as we would like that, isn't going to cut it because it's not going to happen. There's already legislation passed by both houses of Congress, signed by the president, that forces this to exist. And there's nothing in a commentary rule that you can do to make that go away. So management of expectations becomes, uh, becomes a very important um, strategic element to consider. So what I'm going to try to do for the rest of this show, one hour minus eight minutes or so, um, is I've tried very hard, number one, to review the regulation, number two, come up with my particular response to it, and number three, to come up with a way to structure uh, all of these thoughts in a way that makes sense to you who's been kind enough to devote some time to listening to me today. Uh, and so where do we start with 962 pages of regulation? Um, I think we start with some metaphors. We start with a couple of concepts. We start with something called the shell game, right? We all know what the shell game is. I think what's going on here I would call a shell game in healthcare that involves not just the rule itself, but involves everything that's led up to the rule over the past several years. So let's just talk about what a shell game is to start with, right? What's the shell game? We're all sort of familiar with this, right? Uh, the gamer, we'll call it, uh, the dealer, let's say, uh, puts three shells on a table in front of you and puts a pea or a ball or something under one of the shells. And the idea is is that the dealer's going to move the shells around, and when the dealer's done moving the shells around, you're going to try to figure out which shell has the ball under it or the pea under it. And if you choose correctly, you win. And if you made a bet, you get money. And if you don't choose correctly, you lose. And uh, if you made a bet, you're going to lose your money. So that seems simple enough, right? That's why people are tempted to play. And uh, But what's supposed to happen, you know, why do you lose? Well, you lose because uh, for two reasons. One reason I knew about and one reason I didn't know about until I researched this. But everyone understands that the shell game or the dealer is going to be very crafty and very quick with his hands to move those shells around so that perhaps you, you break your concentration or you lose your gaze fixation on the shell that's got the ball under it. And m more often than not, you're not going to be able to follow which shell has the ball. Or so I thought. It turns out if you research this, it's actually even more sinister than that. It turns out that the dealer of this game very often is truly a dirty dealer uh, and has learned the slate of hand not only to move the shells around so that you can't follow the shell with the ball, but is able to palm the ball out from under the shell. So at the moment you're going to choose which shell has the ball, it turns out none of the shells have the ball. The ball is in the dealer's hand, which means no matter which shell you pick, you're going to lose. So if you pick, say, the center shell, the dealer picks it up, there's no ball under it, he goes to show you the shell that's got the ball, but as he does it, he actually palms the ball back under the shell. So at that point, you have absolutely no chance of winning. And it gets even worse than that. You know, they will use ringers. You know, as you walk past the shell game, there's somebody there, and they appear to be winning lots and lots of money to tempt you to play, but it turns out that it's a plant, and that person's not really winning money. They're just putting on a fake show for you. 
Uh, and so all of these things go on. They'll even let you win a couple of rounds, right? Let you win a couple of rounds yourself, get you betting. Next thing you know, you know, you've lost your shirt if you're gambling. So the shell game is not only a hard game to win in an honest game, but it turns out that most of the time the game is dishonest. So as we end this first segment here, you know, what's the question? How do you win? The shell game. If you have to play, how do you win? Well, people will tell you that the best way to win is not to play at all. Well, if we're going to extend the shell game metaphor to what's going on in healthcare, we are physicians, or in my audience and our audience here, physicians, or appropriately similarly concerned individuals. Um, but even as patients, we're forced to play the shell game. So how are we going to survive? How are we going to win? Well, there's two ways. One is don't play at all. That's not really an option. There's another option, which is that you can change the rules. So how do you change the rules in the shell game? How do you beat the guy who's palming the ball? Well, instead of guessing which shell has the ball under it, you can say, I'm going to tell you which two shells don't have the ball. And now you put the, the dishonest gamer in a very difficult position because you can pick, instead of saying, I think the center shell has the ball, I'm going to say the left-hand shell doesn't. Lift that, there's no ball. I'm going to say the right-hand shell doesn't. Lift that, doesn't have the ball. Now the only shell down is the middle shell, and the dealer either has to confess to being dishonest or the dealer has to put the, be- shell, or put the ball back under the center shell and let you in. So how does this whole shell game thing apply to healthcare? We're going to talk about that in the next segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we are entertaining a very serious topic, a very important topic today uh, called the Medicare Access and Chips Reauthorization Act, called MACRA. It is the most important piece of legislation to come down the pipeline since Obamacare passed six years ago. It will have a profound effect on every doctor and every patient in this country, and that means just about everyone. I can't imagine any exception to one of those two possibilities. Uh, the Doctor's Lounge is broadcast on America 
America's Web Radio Thursday mornings and is available for podcast download anytime you want, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The current show is generally available the following Monday, and we are very grateful to David Moxley at America's Web Radio for working so hard to support our weekly broadcast. The Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We are a 501c3 education organization. Uh, We welcome and desperately need your donations. Please go to www.d4pc. That's D, the numeral 4, letter P, letter C, foundation.org, and donate generously. No donation is too small. If everyone in the sound of my voice just donates 5 or 10 or $15, we can keep this show going another several months, and we are grateful uh, for your support, so thank you very much in advance. The Doctor Patient Care Foundation believes in the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship as the centerpiece of all that is good in healthcare. Uh, we believe in the empowerment of doctors and patients to work together with a minimal third-party interference and with as much information as possible. We believe that the only entity that can drive costs down is a patient that has a first dollar cost skin in the game, if you will. And to the extent that third-party inter- uh, entities, uh, be they insurance companies, hospitals, insurance plans, regulators, legislators, uh, to the extent that they interfere with that relationship, uh, they make the control of costs and the enhancement of quality in health care far more difficult. So as we continue our conversation regarding um, this this law, which is about as much third-party interference as you can possibly imagine, um, I did my best, um, starting with the last segment and continuing through the rest of the hour, to uh, to try to outline for you what's in this law and to sort of bring it into focus using the metaphor, using examples, something that can be easily uh, communicated. And, and the best example I could come up with was the shell game. And we talked about the shell game in the first segment. What happens in the shell game? The shells get moved around, and you think you know where the little ball under the shells is, but it turns out you don't. That might be because an honest dealer is just moving the shells very well, or it might be because a dishonest dealer is palming the ball out from under the shells, so no matter which shell you pick, um, you're going to lose. So we talked about how do you beat the shell game. Well, you can beat the shell game by not playing. That's not terribly practical, but you can also beat the shell game by changing the rules. And we talked about an example where maybe you can't win by picking the shell where the ball is, but you can win by picking the shells where the ball is not and throwing the dealer's dishonesty off. And then they either have to come clean or they got to put the ball back and let you win. So... How do we apply the shell game concept to what's going on in healthcare, uh, which is sort of epitomized by this proposed macro rule, but actually exists in a lot of different places? So let's turn the clock back a few years, uh, back to right after Obama was elected, and the, uh, the, the litigation began, the conversation began about what's wrong with America's health care system. And we all agreed as far as the starting point goes. We all agreed that the problem, the two problems, which are almost two ways of saying the same thing, are cost and access. Right? Why are those two ways of saying the same thing? Well, obviously, the more something costs, the harder it is to access it, and that there will be an enlarging segment of the population which, because of cost, um, can't afford care and therefore doesn't have any access. And we all agreed health care was taking a larger part of the gross domestic product. Health care was uh, creating more and more uninsured patients. And it really didn't matter if you're, the number you believed was 30 million or 10 million or 50 million. Everyone agreed there was a significant segment of the population that had, did not have access to care, and that was a problem we needed to fix. We all agreed. 
And then the shell gamers got involved, started moving the shells around. And, and, you know, they put a shell over the ball called cost and access. And then there was an empty shell next to it, um, which represents different concepts called quality and value. And the shifty shell gamers started to move the shells around so that we weren't talking about cost and access anymore. We were talking about quality and value. And we're going to go into that in a little bit more detail in a minute. But I, I call that piece of the shell game problem substitution, right? You start off talking about one problem, cost and access. Next thing you know, the shell gamers have you in a conversation about quality and value. And then the next step is, yeah, well, if quality and value is the problem, then doctor behavior is now the problem. And now they lower the boom and do what I call scapegoat substitution, which is now to make this whole thing the doctor's fault, right? If we go back to the cost access thing, we now can invoke blame on every major stakeholder in the healthcare system, right? If, if cost and access are the problem, hospitals are to blame because they're expensive. Insurers are to blame because the premiums are too high, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can invoke a role, uh, you know, you can invoke blame to every segment of the system and, and then have a, an intelligent way to work that out. Well, the other competitive stakeholders don't want that. They want to blame the weakest link. I don't say the weakest link, but the, the politically weakest link, which would be the physicians, right? Because we know that the hospitals have lobbyists, the, 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 the healthcare plans have lobbyists. Who has the weakest lobby? Well, the physicians. So where's it all going to roll downhill to on the political landscape to the doctors? So how do they do that? Well, they do this with this problem substitution cell shell game, right? If we talk about cost and access, everybody's at blame. But if we slide that over and move the shells around a little bit and make the conversation about quality and value, then ha, then it's the doctor's fault. Now that gives us justification to slap a bunch of regulations on doctors to make them do better because now we've got everybody subliminally convinced that they're the problem. So we have problem substitution and we have what I call scapegoat substitution, which moves the conversation from cost and access to quality and value and then makes it very convenient and conceptually easy to blame physicians. You have to recognize that if you're going to fix the problem. And then we have this other thing called accountability substitution. That's another shell game that goes on because, uh, you know, who's actually responsible for these regulations? Who's going to stand up and say, I am the one who's responsible for MACRA. I own this. I will defend this because I'm emotionally invested. Well, can CMS do that? Well, no. Their regulations have a floor imposed on them by the, the law. Or their, their, yeah, their regulations, um, you know, have to satisfy the requirements of the legislation like we talked about in the last segment. And so CMS isn't responsible completely. Congress isn't responsible completely. They say, well, we just wrote the legislation. It's up to CMS to write the regulation. So each of them can sort of point the finger at the other. And so no matter which shell you lift, whether you lift up the CMS shell, there's no ball under it. If you lift up the, the, the Congress shell, there's no ball under it. So, you know, who's responsible? Well, you know, that's the shell game. It's hard to figure out. Everyone's got a little piece of it, but nobody can take the whole thing. And so, you know, this is where you got to understand how the shell game works. So let's go back a minute. I want to develop um, for the rest of the segment this whole concept of what happened with problem substitution, right? The conversation started with cost and access. The shell gamers moved it around so the conversation was about quality and value. Well, how'd they do that? Well, they actually did it with a, a report called the World Health Report 2000. 
right? This is where the garbage came from that you have been hearing as either a physician or a similarly interested listener of this program about how our healthcare system stinks and we're not getting our money's worth. Now, how did that conversation go? And you've all heard this before. I'm going to mention it just to make sure you understand how to knock that argument down. We said, well, the United States spends the most money per capita on health care, right? That number is currently about $8,700 per person. We spend way more than anybody else in the entire world, and yet our health care system stinks. How do we know that? Well, we know because even though we're number one in spending, we're 37th in infant mortality, and we're 34th in life expectancy. And they point to countries like Japan and other places that spend far less on health care, but yet their health care system must be better because people are living longer, right? And babies survive better, right? Well, the numbers may be correct, but to connect the dots and say that those are a measure of a health care system's performance is absolutely flat out wrong. Infant mortality and life expectancy are not accurate or intelligent measures of how a healthcare system performs. So well, how do we know that? Well, we know that because if you look at the data, you know, all you can say, if you plot, if you make a statistical scatter plot of, of life expectancy and spending or infant mortality and spending, what you find, you know, looks like a shotgun blast, right? It looks, you see that there's no relationship between healthcare spending and life expectancy or healthcare spending and infant mortality. There's no relationship, right? There are, there are countries that spend very, very little on their, um, you know, like Greece, I think, spends less on healthcare per capita than any other country, and yet they have an excellent life expectancy. And yet you look like somebody in the United States spends a huge amount and has less life expectancy. So life expectancy and infant mortality don't depend on the performance of the healthcare system. They depend on other things. And we know this is true. Life expectancy depends on lifestyle, and it depends on genetics. So what's the best way to figure that out? Well, it turns out, let's look at the, the, the country with the highest life expectancy, which I think is Japan. Um, and so how, um, how, do, how do Japanese fare? Well, the best way to measure that is what's the life expectancy in Japan versus what's the life expectancy of people of Japanese ancestry who live in the United States? And it turns out they're pretty much the same. So if you're Japanese and you enjoy a combination of genetics and lifestyle, which allow you to live longer, it doesn't matter which healthcare system you're in, the Japanese healthcare system or the American healthcare system, your life expectancy is about the same. And it turns out that, that even the author, not really the author, the editor-in-chief, right, one Philip Musgrove, Dr. Philip Musgrove, PhD, who was the editor-in-chief of this body of work called the World Health, World Health Report 2000 came out in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2010 and said, you know what, this data is being horribly misused. Right? This data had so many mathematical assumptions built into it that the data are not valid for the purpose of comparing the quality of healthcare systems and it needs to stop. Right? He, the quote is, it's long past time for these zombie numbers to disappear from circulation. And that's about as strong a language as you can imagine coming from the one person who was in charge of this document. 
it's important that you understand this because you know these arguments look very, very powerful if you don't understand their weaknesses, and you will lose the discussion if a big government supporter gets up and points to health uh, to life expectancy and infant mortality and says the American healthcare system stinks. That sounds very formidable unless you know how to knock it down. And so that's why before we get into the meat of macra, you need to understand how the shell game works where the weaknesses in those arguments are so that you can say, no, no, not today. We're going to keep this conversation where it needs to be and not follow the big government propaganda. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we are discussing one of the biggest pieces of legislation affecting health care to come down the pike since the passage of Obamacare six years ago called MACRA, or the Medicare Access and Chips Reauthorization Act of 2015. Uh, why are we talking about that now? Because CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, have just released the proposed body of regulations based on the legislation called MACRA. And we are in the public commentary period, which began at the beginning of May and will end near the end of June. And in the interest of encouraging you, our listeners, to submit your own comments, uh, I'm doing an outline of this, of of the high points of MACRA, uh, as best you can in an hour, and sort of giving you my response and my comments to the shortcomings of this proposed legislation, um, and in the hopes that you'll use that as a basis of forming your own opinion. I don't expect you to agree with me or anybody else uh, regarding what you hear, um, but hopefully at least the stuff I'm telling you here will give you uh, a bit of food for thought, if nothing else. But regardless of whether you think everything I'm saying is spot on or you think everything I'm saying is garbage, I encourage you to go to cms.gov, uh, go through a couple of links and find the place where you can submit your own comments. Um, and please do so. You don't have to be an expert on every page of this 962-page law. Bottom line is, aside from a few, a few folks in this world whose full-time responsibility is to understand stuff like this, 
which does not include me because I'm a full-time physician, I see sick people for a living, um, then you just pick what you want to comment on and comment on it. You don't have to understand the entire law. You know, you can write 50 pages or you can write 50 words. It doesn't matter. Uh, But we need to have a strong comment period, something far bigger than they've ever seen before for similar legislation in order for us to make an impact. So I encourage you, get on CMS.gov, speak your mind, and let's be sure that our voices are heard. So at the end of the last segment, we were, again, talking about the shell game as a metaphor, how that applies to not just MIPS and MACRA, um, but uh, many of the other concepts that have occupied the health care reform narrative since Obamacare was first introduced uh, back at the beginning of uh, President Obama's first term. And we talked about how the shell game, the players of the shell game, moved the shells around, and, and we were talking about the worthy topics of cost and access – which were truly the biggest issues facing our healthcare system back then, and that that kind of got morphed into a, con- a conversation about uh, quality and value. Um, and that's a bad thing. That's the evil shell gamers palming the ball and moving it to another shell so that you can't figure out where the discussion is anymore. And, and, and why is this bad? Well, you know, cost and access are pretty easy to measure. Right. I mean, there may be some disagreement about the numbers, but it's obvious to, to anyone who doesn't live under a rock that the cost of health care is going up uh, as a percentage of our gross domestic product. It's going up uh, and that makes the problem of folks uh, who can't afford care to get bigger and bigger. And that's a pretty easy concept to measure. Relatively speaking, it's a pretty easy concept to discuss. But when you play the shell game and substitute value and quality, you now have move the discussion into two things that are nearly impossible to measure, right? I mean, let's talk about value for a second. How do you define value? Well, you know, in an economics textbook, I think value is defined as the the product of a single transaction between somebody who has something to sell and somebody who wants to buy it, and they agree on a price. And the moment that transaction occurred, uh, the value is measured by the price that was exchanged. And that has to happen between only two parties, it can't happen after the fact. So if you go into Best Buy and, and you see a flat screen TV and the price is $1,000, if you buy that TV, what's it worth? $1,000. If you didn't buy that TV, what's it worth? Well, something less than $1,000, whatever that price had to go down to make you change your mind and buy it. You can't go after that after the fact. And so we have this, you know, this, this shell game, again, I keep coming back to the metaphor, being played by not just folks in the government, but even the American Board of Internal Medicine and other medical specialty boards with this concept of maintenance of certification, right? Now, we've talked about this before, don't have time to go into it at length, but now doctors have to prove again and again and again that they have enough knowledge to practice medicine. And they put up this straw man argument that the public is demanding value, Somehow the public's demanding that physicians, you know, pay thousands of dollars and study dozens of hours um, to prove that they can take care of patients even though that's what they do every day. And they say, well, the public demands it. Well, you know, that's a bunch of steamy dog squeeze. That's just not true. You know, I, I dare anyone, I dare anyone within the sound of my voice to find me a patient advocacy group, a disease advocacy group, a consumer group to come forward and say that in recent years doctors aren't smart enough. 
and that they're making bad decisions, they're missing diagnoses or, or, or I mean, obviously don't know enough to do their job, but somehow there's been a loss of competency that needs to be compensated for by all these maintenance and certification programs. Anybody who can find that, show it to me because I don't think it's out there. So far, I've made that challenge on multiple occasions, and I have yet to hear from anyone to say, oh, yeah, here's a group that said we really need to do this. Uh, what's happening is the cost of care is going up. In this particular case, the American Board of Internal Medicine is getting filthy rich over this, and uh, it's just it, it's making the problem far worse. How are they able to do it? By the shell game that uh, that we are talking about. So you know, quality and value mean different things to different people, and there's no way that a governing body, whether it's the ABIM or CMS or anybody else, can determine value or measure quality or impose quality or force quality or value after the fact. So I just want to make that point. I meant to do that at the end of the last segment uh, before we got into the, the meat of macro. So in segment three here, we're going to talk about what's in macro, the highlights, and I'm going to try to distill this down to the stuff that's worth remembering, at least from the standpoint of making comments or having an opinion on the MIPS macro regulation. So What's in macro? Well, think of macro as a series of sort of decision trees, right? As you first contemplate macro, you have to decide what kind of doctor do you want to be? Do you want to be a doctor that stays in traditional Medicare fee-for-service, or do you want to try these other things called an alternative payment model? That would be the Accountable Care Organization, the ACO, that you've heard a lot about, although nobody really knows much, or a medical home where people know even less. Um, do you want to try one of those models, or do you want to go into a stick with a traditional fee-for-service? Well, even by CMS's estimates, 90% of us physicians are going to stick with traditional fee-for-service. So if you do that, you now sign into something called MIPS, which is the Merit Incentive Payment System. And what's going to happen here is that you're going to get a score from Medicare every year based on four criteria. And we're going to talk about what those criteria are. But based on those criteria, you're going to end up with a score. Now, if your score is above a threshold, which will be arbitrarily determined by CMS, not yet determined, if your score is above that threshold, right, that threshold could be 50 out of 100 or 95 out of 100, we don't know. If you're above threshold, you win. You get a bonus, which will escalate every year and could be as high as 9% over what you're making now by 2020. So serious money. But the whole thing has got to be revenue neutral. So how are they going to pay for that? Well, if your score is below threshold, you get a penalty of a roughly equal amount. So you have the losers that are financing the winners. So if you if your score is below threshold, Medicare is going to penalize you. They're going to take that money and give it to bonus the people that are doing better than you are by these scores. So where does the score come from? It comes from four criteria. The first is called quality reporting, and in 2017, that'll be worth half the score. It is the single biggest criteria, quality reporting. You need to report on six quality measures that you choose from a list of about 475. And each of those measures has sort of a parent organization that's the specialty that, that, that corresponds to the measure. And in those six, you have to have at least one measure they call a cost-cutting measure and one measure that's called an outcomes measure. And there's another, there's more fine print for multiple substitutions and, again, don't have time to go into it. But the big thing that CMS wants you to know is that, uh, that this is a lower number of quality measures than existed under meaningful use. 
right? Under meaningful use, it was nine. Now it's down to six. Big bonus, right? This is where they say, yes, we're streamlining. We're lowering the documentation burden. We're making it easier for doctors to practice medicine instead of worry about all these regulations. Okay, yeah, sure. Quality reporting, 50%, number one. Number two, um, in, in order of decreasing percentage weight is um, something called advancing care information. This is the new name for the meaningful use stuff. And the advancing care information piece of your score is 25%. Uh, to pass that, you need a three-point attestation. And this is where things get a little scary. This is where things get a little sinister. You need to sign or attest, I will say, uh, sort of a pledge of allegiance to CMS uh, and, and the federal government, if you will, that says, I will not block CMS's efforts to monitor my EMR. I will respond in a timely manner to patients' requests for records, and I will not um, do anything with all of the internal settings in my electronic medical records to hamper CMS's monitoring of uh, of, of how my EMR is performing. See, this is a new concept. It's kind of sliding in. You need to know about this. This is very sinister, right? They're, again, shell game, right? They're talking about, hey, look over here. You know, the requirements for, for quality reporting are easier. This is great. This is what we promised you. And everybody talks about that. In the meantime, they're going, oh, by the way, uh, we decided that the ONC can, uh, can get backdoor access to your EMR uh, to monitor quality of care. And, uh, you know, that's fine, uh, but we all know where that's going. That will get gradually expanded and expanded until basically, you know, the, you've got a, a, a T1 line or a, a, a you know, broadband Internet line plugged into your EMR server that CMS can cruise into anytime they want to and see what you're up to. And the, the potential for corruption and evil there is obvious to anyone with half a brain. So that's number two, advancing care. What's uh, number three? is something called clinical practice improvement activities. And this is where they slid in maintenance of certification and things like fall risk and all that kind of stuff. That's 15%. Um, and then uh, the last one is something you have absolutely no control over, which is resource use. And you don't have to do any reporting. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is, is that they compile data on you based strictly on claims uh, and, and uh, calculate that part of your score. So that's kind of the highlights of how MIPS works. And those weights will change every year. You know, they're starting with a high amount in quality reporting. I think that's going to ramp down, and some of the other ones are, are going to ramp up. But if you get into the fine print of this, it's extremely complicated. I have simplified this to a great degree so that we can actually talk about it inside a one-hour radio show. And even after looking at this 962-page document for several hours, I still don't profess to understand it well enough to implement it in my own practice yet. So... Very, very complicated stuff. But again, the ugly part is this thing is engineered so that there must be winners and there must be losers. The winners are doctors in big practices. Uh, 82% of those doctors will get bonuses. The big losers are small practices, solo practitioners. If you're a solo practitioner, there's an 87% chance you will get penalized rather than rewarded. And if you're in a medium practice, two to nine docs, there's a 70% chance you'll get penalized and a 30% chance that you get rewarded. So the ugly truth here is that MIPS is going to move money from small practices to big ones and continue to encourage this consolidation of care, which, again, what are we trying to fix? It was cost. It was access. What's this going to do? It's going to raise cost because we know when, when physicians go into employment models and they join large institutions, it gets worse, not better. 
You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge, segment four on America's Web Radio, sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. This is still your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for sticking with us the entire hour for a very heavy-duty topic, uh, the review and response to MACRA, the Medicare Access and CHIPS Reauthorization Act of 2015. Uh, we appreciate you sticking around. This is a very important piece of legislation. It will affect the practice of medicine, not only for Medicare patients, but likely for everyone for the next several years to come, and we are in a very critical comment period. Uh, we are reviewing this with the intent of helping you, our valued listeners, uh, both physicians and similarly concerned folks, uh, patients as well, uh, to comment on this. Go to cms.gov and share your thoughts. Uh, hopefully what we share with you today will give you a basis for you to form your own opinion. Certainly don't have to agree with mine, uh, but uh, please let them know what you think because the more they hear, uh, then the stronger our voice becomes. So we've talked about this concept of the shell game. We've applied that not only to macro, but some of the concepts that have uh, surrounded macro uh, and uh, and some of these things like value-based purchasing and all this sort of thing that uh, uh, has been talked about at great length, uh, but it has yet to be adequately defined well enough to benefit patients. Uh, and so as we talk about, you know, how do we respond? If, it's, if you've got a blank sheet of paper and you're writing your comments, what do you say about something like this? Well, first, let's talk about strategy. I think uh, the first thing we need to review, and we talked about it in segment one, is who actually owns this thing, right? I mean, one of the things you realize when you study macro or a regulation like it is that, uh, you know, there's no one person or one entity um, that is really wholly responsible for the whole thing, right? CMS writes the regulations, but there's a floor imposed on those regulations by the legislation. 
and so there's no amount of protesting or commenting that's going to make macro go away in this comment period because it has to be there. It is the law of the land, and that is an unfortunate reality. We, we missed our opportunity last year uh, because, again, they played a shell game and said, oh, we need to repeal the, the, uh, the SGR, the formula that was used for Medicare payments that wasn't working, and everybody bought into that, and next thing you know, all this other macro stuff kind of slipped in like a shell game or a Trojan horse, if you will. So it's there. Uh, the problem is when we, when we go to respond to it, who exactly do we respond to? That's the problem is who owns this thing? Now, you know, for, at a superficial level, that's easy, right? You go to CMS.gov and you find the form and you fill in your comments or, you know, upload your document. And they want you to be done with it right then, right? You just, you know, I did it. It's done. Uh, you know, we'll just wait and see how they respond. Uh, but I think an effective strategy needs to go beyond that. I think what we need to do is take our message to the public and do more than just send this thing off, you know, from my computer to their computer in the middle of the night when you finish writing it. Uh, and, and carry this message to everybody who might have a, a stakeholder. And I don't know, you know, who do you take this to? I mean, who's the, who's the entities, the silent partners, if you will, that actually support the entirety of something like this? Is it, is it Burwell? Is it Secretary Burwell? Is it Obama? Is it the nameless, faceless people in the Office of Management and Budget at the White House? Is it insurers, hospitals? Uh, you know, where is this all coming from? Probably all of the above to some extent, which means that's where the message needs to go. So that everybody can hear that. So we can't stop after midnight, June 27th. We need to continue to carry this message all the way through until the final rule is issued and then probably not stop there either. The second thing we need to do is recognize the shell game. And, and, and when we make our responses, we've got to rearrange those shells and put them back the way they were before the game started getting played and acknowledge and emphasize that quality and cost are not the same. And that when data from the World Health Report 2000 is used to try to document that our healthcare system is bad or doesn't give us value, that we can say, no, 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 that's a misinterpretation of the data. What it really shows is that there's no uh, relationship between what a healthcare system does and the money that's put into it. And, and use that as justification to say, hey, we can do much of what we're doing now and do it for less money. So you can turn that data around and interpret it in a different way. You know, really the only quality issue that I've ever been able to identify is, is the whole medical error thing. And, and, and I think we can take ownership of that and then turn around and say, well, look, there's nothing in macro that addresses medical errors. In fact, we can argue that macro makes medical errors worse because we're now – and here's another – You know, if you don't like my – shell game metaphor let's talk about a distracted driver metaphor and sort of talk about that as a distracted doctor right you, you know your doctor can't think about what your medications are if we're too busy checking a box to talk about your medications if we if we're too busy you know fulfilling all of these quality reporting initiatives and practice improvement initiatives and and EMR requirements we don't have the the mental capacity left we don't have the energy to turn around and, and you know look into your patient's eyes and hold your hand and say whatever you've got we're going to help you fix it you know because nobody's paying for that right there is no quality measure that says get the diagnosis right the first time. There's no quality measure that says have some bedside manner and, you know, when your patient's scared to death because the lump in their neck might be cancer, that you put a hand on their shoulder and say, this might be bad, it might not be, but whatever it is, I'm going to stick with you and get you through it. There's no quality box for that. 
In fact, these things compete with that. They make it harder to do the things that really matter. And that's a message we can drive home. And if you like the, the uh, you know, distracted doctor, distracted driver thing, run with that. Or come up with your own. You know, to me, it doesn't matter which one you use, as long as you use some sort of a, of a literary device as opposed to just writing CMS and saying, well, I think you know, the number on page 385 needs to be a 5 instead of a 6. That's what they're kind of looking for, but that really doesn't help us. So what's my commentary going to look like? And, and I'll share with you in the last seven or eight minutes that we have sort of the rough draft of the things that I would propose, the stuff that's going to be in my comments to CMS do the 27th. Number one, I think we need to reduce the quality measures from six to three, right? In meaningful use, it was nine. In MIPS, they reduced it down to six, and they said, uh, you know, oh, that's great. We've reduced it from nine to six. We've eased the burden. Well, you haven't done squat. Uh, You know, let's look at two thought leaders in this um, arena. One is John Halamka, who is the uh, chief information officer at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital and is probably America's leading physician IT geek by his own description. Uh, and, and he writes some really good stuff. Uh, one of the things, he's written two major blog posts on Macra, and the second one kind of got into the things he would do, and he said quality measure of three is probably the right number. I like that number two. If, if you have to have it at all, that's a pretty reasonable number and says at least it gives you a low number that you can try to concentrate on and do it well. Even Don Berwick, and I don't know if you know who Don Berwick is. He's he was used to be in the in the executive branch of the the government, and he was the one who was all romantic about the National Health Service in Britain. That was the word he used. Is he loves the Britain's National Health Service? In fact, he was quote romantic over it close quote. So definitely a big government single payer kind of guy. And he even wrote an article and said, all of this quality reporting is garbage. We need to reduce the numerators and denominators that we, uh, that we submit by 50%. So half of nine is four. So Berwick sort of by inference says four. Halamka says three. I like three as, a, as, as something that at least if you have to have them at all, it's a reasonable number. So, uh, so you know, that's, that's number one. And, and, and to support that – I think, you know, we need to look at some numbers. You know, what does quality reporting cost? Well, it's a huge number. It's $15 billion per year, and that's just up to this point. That's before MIPS and Macro go live. I think it's a conservative estimate to think that that number is going to double at least to $30 billion per year. And if you roll in the other parts of, right, quality reporting is one of four parts of, of, uh, of MIPS Macro. So, you know, it's easy and conservative to estimate that the cost to the healthcare system is easily $50 billion per year. So at $50 billion per year, you know, that's, that's healthcare insurance for about 4 million people, right? What did this whole conversation start with in 2008, 2009? Cost and access, right? 30 million Americans uninsured, maybe as high as 50 million Americans uninsured, depending on who you count. So my challenge to whoever it is that owns this, whether it's Secretary Burwell, Obama, somebody else, I dare that person to look into a television camera from behind a podium, look at 5 million Americans out there and tell them we're not going to provide you with health care because we got to turn around and do all this quality measuring stuff. I dare any of those people to do that, and I bet you nobody takes me up on it. Uh, You know that they won't because they don't have the guts. 
But the bottom line is whatever we're doing here to try to fix what's really a cost access problem starts out between 30 and $50 billion in the hole that they got to make up before they get the first dollar of benefit. And I just don't see how that works. So number one, reduce quality measures because they're expensive and nobody reads the bloody data. So that's number one. Number two is we talked about how the scoring is set up on this thing, right? There has to be winners and losers, right? They're going to set this thing so that the losers cough up enough money to pay the winners. That's garbage, right? That means that, that no matter how well you do, somebody's going to lose, and that's not fair. It doesn't, it doesn't incentivize anybody to perform well. So they need to set up a threshold system that allows everybody to succeed. Uh, you know, in conversations with I, that I have had with CMS folks, they, they want or they say they want an incentive system that everybody can meet and everybody can win, and that's not what they have right now. So number two, set a threshold that can have all winners and no losers. Number three, every quality measure has to satisfy three criteria, each one of those 475. Number one is it has to be based on scientific method. Right, Scientific method is totally lacking in this entire process. These are all arbitrary measures that, that people drew out of a hat. Uh, you know, None of these measures have any, as far as I know, I mean, I can't say I researched 475 of them. I can tell you I looked at the ones for otolaryngology. And as far as I know, none of them have any, any scientific method behind them to suggest that actually reporting on that data is going to do anything any good. So number one, scientific method based. Number two, there has to be a plan for the folks to actually read the data and act on the data, right? Because meaningful use has been around for six years. We've been doing quality measure reporting for six years. Terabytes and terabytes of data reported to CMS. Has anybody read it? No. Anybody act on it? No. Anybody use it to improve the practice of medicine, reduce costs, improve value, raise quality? No, not a bit. So if we're going to continue to dump money into this, somebody on the other end has got to be reading it and saying, we have a plan. You're going to report on... You know, antibiotic use in external ear infections. That's one of the ones for my specialty. But somebody's going to read that data and do something about it. Not going to happen, probably. And last but not least, it's got to run in the background. So it doesn't slow me down in the office. And I know that can be done because I've written the code for REMR to do it in the background. I know it can be done. This is stuff that needs to run in the background. Let's challenge the vendors to do this stuff as opposed to dumping it on the docks. And let's finally, let's get rid of the certification requirements for us to report that uh, the, the, that that certification of an EMR should be strictly between the vendor and the government. Leave us out of it. We don't need to be doing that work. And last but not least, in the last 10 seconds is CMS, for heaven's sake, back off this sneaky power grab. You don't need to be back-end accessing EMRs for quality monitoring. There's no indication for that. Uh, and, and that's just a, a sinister move that has no moral justification whatsoever. Um, we are out of time. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.